This is a bonus episode of If the Walls Could Talk podcast. The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. Fire department. Yeah, um, so I heard what sounded like an explosion in the apartment below me, and it looks like it's on fire. So you can actually see the fire? Yeah, I smelled smoke and went out onto my balcony, and I could see orange flames through the window below me. Is there anyone in the apartment? You know, I can't tell. What's your address? 2740 North Pine Grove in Chicago. Fire's on the 15th floor. Okay. We'll get a truck out there, but I need you to evacuate the building immediately, okay? I'm actually calling from the lobby, so I'm heading out right now. Chicago firefighters responded to the call and quickly made their way up to the 15th floor. They were greeted by thick smoke pouring from under the door of apartment 15B. Once inside, they discovered the fire was contained to the bedroom. Smoldering on the floor was a large pile of clothes. These clothes appeared to have been yanked from their hangers. After dousing the clothes with water, the first responders focused their attention on a burning mattress. Within minutes, the fire was out. The firemen then broke open some windows to clear the smoky air in the small one-bedroom apartment. When visibility returned, something on the bedroom floor caught the eye of a firefighter. Poking out from under the charred mattress was what looked like a human knee. He stuck his boot under the mattress to lift it up and then aimed his flashlight at the floor. Staring back at him was the charred and lifeless body of Teresita Bassa. She was on her back, completely naked, with her legs spread apart. The fire had badly burned one side of her face and most of her dark black hair. If that sight wasn't already disturbing, protruding from the center of her chest was a large kitchen knife. The firemen froze and radioed for backup. This was now a crime scene. On the night of February 21st, 1977, the investigation into the robbery and murder of Teresita Bassa began. In the end, it would prove to be one of the strangest and most unbelievable investigations in Chicago history. The killer eventually would be identified by a ghost. But would the police or anyone else actually believe it? The case called The Voice from the Grave immediately captured the attention of people all across the globe, and understandably so. It combines true crime with the supernatural and has an ending that no one saw coming. My name is Stephanie Young. And I'm Todd Gans. We hosted If the Walls Could Talk, the podcast series about the true crimes that destroyed Chicago's Edgewater Hospital. The hospital is a big part of the story. The victim and the suspect work there, along with another woman who was possessed by the victim's ghost. In this bonus episode, we'll cover the murder investigation of Teresita Bassa, and in the next episode, we'll cover the unusual trial that followed. A quick note that none of the people in the story wanted to participate. In fact, most wanted to distance themselves from it. Through our research, we've learned that the facts in this case have been bent, twisted, and exaggerated through the years. So we'll reference court documents, newspaper articles, and the book, Teresita Voice from the Grave, written by journalists John O'Brien and Edward Bauman. So who is Teresita Bassa? 
Well, Teresita was born in the Philippines in 1929 and moved to Chicago in the 1970s. She came to pursue her master's degree in music, but during the day, she worked as a respiratory therapist at Edgewater Hospital. She would give you the shirt off her back. Georgette Ginter worked with Teresita. Very active in her community and just kind to everybody. Very trusting. Teresita was well-liked and friendly, but also very quiet and shy. She was someone who warmed up to you after she got to know you. She was also a creature of habit. You'd always find her sitting in the same spot in Edgewater Hospital's cafeteria. She'd hum and sing to herself while she picked at her lunch. Now, music was a big part of her life in Chicago. She gave piano lessons and even played in a band called the Mahogany Five Plus One. It was a tongue-in-cheek name because the band had five Filipinos and one Polish drummer. Even on the night Teresita died, the 47-year-old was busy selling tickets for her band's upcoming concert. She lived in a high-rise apartment in Chicago's Lincoln Park neighborhood, which was a little sketchy back in the 1970s, but today is one of the most desirable neighborhoods in the city. Now, her version of the American dream was to live in an apartment large enough to fit a piano, and her respiratory therapist job at Edgewater Hospital afforded her that dream. And even though she didn't drink, she still hosted several parties at that apartment. Even Teresita's mom flew to the States for one of those parties. That was when it became clear that Teresita had no plans to return to the Philippines. Before her mom left, she gave Teresita a jade necklace and a pearl cocktail ring and said, I don't know when I will see you again, so I want you to wear this and when you do, please think of me. With music, grad school, and her job at Edgewater Hospital, Teresita had a full plate. But one thing she didn't have was a man in her life. And that was on purpose. About 10 years earlier, Teresita was wooed by a handsome Chicago man. The two dated and were well on their way to happily ever after. He even flew to the Philippines to meet her family and friends. He spent three weeks there and quickly earned her parents' respect. But one night, he went out for a walk and ended up in the city's red light district. He was later found drunk and naked with a teenage girl on his lap. Teresita's father found out and then threw him out of their house. She never really dated after that. Sure, she had plenty of guy friends, but they were all platonic relationships. So when you add it all up, she was well-liked, had no ex-boyfriends, and no known enemies. This meant finding her killer would be a challenge for investigators. That responsibility fell on the lap of lead detective Joseph Stahula. Now, we've heard a bunch of different pronunciations for his name, Stachula, Stachula, but our research says it's Stahula. Stahula worked homicide for the Chicago Police Department and also was a Marine Corps vet. He has sandy brown hair parted to one side and is described as a no-nonsense cop. With 85 honorable mentions, he was also one of Chicago's most decorated boys in blue. After he reviewed the medical examiner's report, he learned Teresita was choked and then stabbed to death. The report contained another note. Teresita was a virgin. Seeing that she was found naked on her back with her legs spread, her murderer must have staged her body to look like she had been raped. With that information, Detective Joe and his partner went to Teresita's apartment. The building's maintenance man revealed that he actually unlocked Teresita's door for the fireman. The door had two deadbolts and a chain, so the detectives determined that Teresita must have let her murderer into the apartment. Her neighbors weren't very helpful. 
mainly because Teresita was private and no one knew much about her. A walk around the apartment didn't reveal many clues. In the bedroom, a charred suitcase sat next to the murder scene. Necklaces and bracelets were strewn about on top of the dresser. In the living room, a small portable television set sat next to a larger one that had two pillows propped up against it. Detectives also found a couple of crushed beer cans under the couch. In the kitchen area, a sliced tomato rested on a cutting board, but there was no knife. Detectives guessed that that's where the murderer got the knife and stabbed Teresita to death. They found her address book and started paging through the names to set up interviews with her contacts. They also discovered a handwritten note that read, get tickets for AS. They entered that into evidence, but their first major lead came when the detectives talked with her old colleagues at Edgewater Hospital. A doctor there spoke with Teresita on the phone on the night of her murder. We were talking, and around 7, someone knocked on her door. The call to the fire department came in around 8.40 p.m. She didn't say who it was, but mentioned the person wanted to buy a concert ticket. Another hospital employee also phoned Teresita that night. It was sometime around 8 o'clock last night. Her name was Ruth Loeb, and she and Teresita were planning a lunch date. She sounded normal, you know, but I did hear a man's voice in the background, so I told her we could talk later. The detectives asked Ruth if she could remember anything about the man's voice or what he said. Not really. I mean, I couldn't hear what he was saying, but he was talking normally. She actually giggled at something he said. Based on these phone calls, detectives determined that the murderer was a male who Teresita knew. He arrived at her apartment between 7.10 and 8.30 p.m. With that rough timeline, detectives spent weeks following up on numerous leads all of which led to the same dead end. That spring, the case went cold and would remain that way until late that summer, when Teresita's ghost returned from the grave. As you can imagine, the murder of Teresita Bassa in February 1977 would rattle her old colleagues at Edgewater Hospital. The longer her case remained unsolved, the more their uneasiness grew. But it was the bizarre behavior of another Edgewater employee that pushed things to another level. A woman named Remy Chua worked as an inhalation therapist with Teresita. Although they had the same job, the two worked opposite shifts and really didn't know one another. And that's why hospital staff did a double take when Remy started to adopt some of Teresita's old habits and mannerisms. Remy would talk about the same things that Teresita once did, like classical music and playing the piano. She even started using Teresita's old locker, sitting in her old seat in the cafeteria. She'd even pick at her food and hum the same songs like Teresita once did. One night, she jumped up from her chair and ran out of the room. She later explained that she got scared because she saw Teresita. The next day, Remy acted like nothing had happened and continued to mimic Teresita's mannerisms. These grieving hospital employees started asking, what the hell is Remy doing? They were uncomfortable watching Remy impersonate Teresita. Some even mentioned it to her, but Remy shrugged it off. So they complained to management. Remy's boss talked with her, but Remy went into a rage. She complained about her job, her coworkers, and the terrible working conditions at the hospital. Her boss had never seen this side of her and suggested that she take some time off, but Remy didn't let up. She continued with her rant and eventually crossed the line. Her boss fired Remy that day for insubordination. Despite that, she told her husband she was relieved she didn't have to work with these people at Edgewater Hospital. 
especially the ones she was afraid of. Now, depending on what you believe, this is where the story either enters some strange supernatural dimension, or it's the product of a well-thought-out plan to expose a killer. On the same day Remy was fired, she and her husband, Dr. Jose Chua, were sitting in their living room. At some point, Remy got up from her chair and quietly left the room. After a few minutes passed and she didn't return, Dr. Chua went looking for her. Oh, there you are, he said when he found her in their bedroom. She was staring blankly at the ceiling with a sort of confused look on her face. He asked if something was wrong and that's when she began speaking in a voice that was not her own. Remy said her name was Teresita Bassa. Dr. Chua said this voice coming from Remy was not his wife's. He had never heard it before. She spoke a type of dialect from the Philippines called Tagalog, but she was doing so using a slight Spanish accent. She said, Dr. Chua, I would like to ask for your help to stop the person who killed me. Dr. Chua said he felt something push him toward his wife. You must help me, doctor. The voice spoke slowly, clearly, and calmly, and said she needed his help. Call the police. Please. She said Dr. Chua must call the police and help stop her killer. I cannot rest until they know. Their strange conversation ended almost as quickly as it started. Remy came out of whatever trance she was in and said she was thirsty and had a headache. After fetching her a glass of water, Dr. Chua asked if she remembered anything that just happened. Remy said she didn't. But the Chua's strange evening wasn't over yet. Just before midnight, their phone rang. It was a man who asked to speak with Remy. Remy took the receiver, listened for a bit, and then quickly hung up. Dr. Chua asked who was on the phone. I don't know who it was. It sounded like somebody from Earth. He threatened me. He said he was going to get me next. Two days later, Remy was talking with her realtor on the phone when she suddenly dropped the receiver. Teresita's spirit returned and again took over Remy's body. This time, the spirit pleaded with Dr. Chua for his help. She urged him, you must help me, doctor, you must help me. She said he was the only one who could help catch her killer and asked him to report it to the police. Although Dr. Chua privately discussed the incident with some colleagues, he didn't call the police. The next day, Dr. Chua returned home from work and found his wife crying in bed. Teresita's spirit was back for a third time. The spirit sounded more agitated and asked Dr. Chua why he hadn't gone to the police. By this point, Dr. Chua was fed up. The whole ghost stuff was interfering with his work. He told the spirit, you can't just go to the police and accuse someone of murder without proof. And then he asked her, who killed you? He wasn't expecting an answer. Alan Shari, he killed me. Dr. Chua had never heard that name before. He was my friend. I had no reason to fear him. The ghost then described what happened. I let him in and he knocked me unconscious and stabbed me. Teresita's ghost then revealed more about the night she was murdered. My jewelry. Alan stole my jewelry, a pendant, and a pearl cocktail ring. 
The ghost even provided the names of Teresita's relatives who could help identify her stolen jewelry. The spirit also reassured Dr. Chua that she would protect him and his family, even mentioning his wife, in-laws, and daughter by name. When Remy emerged from her trance, she again had no recollection of being possessed. While Dr. Chua struggled over whether or not to report this information to the cops, Remy Chua contacted the Filipino consulate. They put her in touch with someone at Chicago police headquarters who urged her to report what had happened to the police. That man also started his own investigation. That led him to a group of Edgewater Hospital employees who shared something he wasn't expecting. Three other people claimed they saw apparitions of Teresita Basa. They described how her spirit also begged them for help, but they were all afraid of being laughed at, so they stayed silent. The same applied to Remy's husband, Dr. Chua. He was reluctant to report a ghost that took over his wife's body and named her killer. He was a medical professional and knew that could hurt his reputation at the hospital. Instead, he made a police report about the harassing phone call his wife received. He said an Edgewater Hospital employee named Alan Showery made that phone call. He said he heard Alan's voice when he was at the hospital, and it sounded just like the man from the phone. The complaint made its way back to Chicago police detective Joe Stahula, who worked Teresita's murder case before it went cold. This was the first time Detective Joe heard of Alan Showery, so he met the Chuas at their home and started asking questions. Remy Chua said the phone call was one reason they had just moved, and she was scared. She said that Alan was an orderly at Edgewater Hospital, but he liked to pretend he was a doctor. His nickname was Doc. Even his mail at the hospital came addressed to Dr. Alan Showery. As for Teresita Bassa, Remy said she met her at orientation, but they worked different shifts. She added that on the night of Teresita's murder, she was in the hospital and saw the story on the news. But it was her husband's body language that piqued Detective Joe's interest. Doctor, you're sitting all hunched over on the edge of your seat over there, rubbing your hands together like a Boy Scout trying to start a fire. Is there something you'd like to tell me? His response wasn't at all what he was expecting. Well, Detective, do you believe in the occult or in exorcism? Detective Joe paused to choose his words carefully. You know, as a policeman, I've experienced a lot of strange things. Not too much surprises me anymore. But I've always believed a good police officer keeps an open mind. Dr. Chua took a breath and then revealed the secret he'd been keeping for weeks. I, too, have learned to accept some things that we in the medical profession cannot explain. What I'm about to tell you is bizarre, so different, so strange that You'll understand why I have kept silent until now. Detective Joe didn't say a word. We didn't want to make any unjust accusations. I have nothing to base this information on except what the victim told me and what happened to my wife. I have a feeling that whatever you're going to tell me will be very important to both of us. Dr. Chua then detailed the three times his wife took on Teresita's voice. Suddenly, she would just lose contact with reality. She would speak with a strange Spanish accent and said her name was Teresita Bassa. It happened three times and I discovered that if I disagreed with the voice, it would <laughs> become stronger. But if I went along with it, it eventually weakened and would leave my wife. 
so I decided to cooperate fully during the voice's third visit. She explained that Alan Showery killed her and took her jewelry. This was the first time the detective heard about stolen jewelry. She said that the jewelry would be the evidence you would need. Detective Joe was writing notes on his notepad so quickly that he could barely keep up with what Dr. Chua was saying. So tell me, detective, do you believe what I've just told you? Detective Joe looked up from his notepad and again chose his words carefully. I can't say that I do, but I also can't say that I don't believe your story. Nothing like this has ever come up before. I'm sure you can see why this has not been easy for me to tell you. Okay, just one more question. Has Teresita Bassa returned since you contacted the police? No, sir. She has not. On his drive back to the police station, Detective Joe tried to make sense of what had just happened. Most of all, he wished his partner was there because who the hell was going to believe this story? A ghost came back from the grave and identified her killer? Come on. When he got back to his desk, he paged through the Teresita Bassa file. And that's when something jumped out to him. The note they found in Teresita's apartment that read, Get tickets for A.S. Wait a minute. A.S. is Alan Showery. That cryptic note from Teresita's apartment finally made sense. If Teresita was getting tickets for Alan, then maybe Alan was involved. A search into Alan's priors turned up charges of burglary, theft, and even rape. Oh, and then there was this. Alan's last known address was less than a block from Teresita's apartment. Alan went from being completely off the radar to suspect number one, and it all came courtesy of a ghost. It was time for Detective Joe to pay a visit to Alan Showery. The victim, the suspect, and a third person in this case all had one thing in common. They all worked at Chicago's Edgewater Hospital. The once premier hospital closed in 2001 after the feds unraveled a massive fraud scheme. Two patients died as part of that scandal. Doctors went to jail and the hospital's former owner fled the country. Hear the full series beginning with episode one of If the Walls Could Talk podcast. The long and convoluted route that led two Chicago detectives to Alan Showery was almost laughable. The victim's ghost took over another person's body and identified Alan as her killer. As unconventional as that sounds, here they were knocking on Alan Showery's door, which was less than a block from Teresita's apartment building. The suspect opened the door and stood there wearing a white t-shirt and a friendly smile. He appeared to be in his early 30s with warm brown eyes and well-groomed facial hair. He smiled and asked the detectives if they were there to talk about Teresita Bassa. That caught both detectives off guard. Alan seemed almost too happy to see them. He invited them in and agreed to join them at the station to answer a few questions. Alan excused himself and went to change his clothes. The detectives waited with Alan's pregnant wife named Yanka. The three made small talk while the detectives noticed a stack of books about psychic phenomena. Yanka remained behind while Alan and the two cops drove to the police station. They drove in silence until Alan eventually spoke up. Wonderful woman. The silent treatment is a detective's way to get suspects talking. You know, Teresita didn't have an enemy in the world. 
She was one of those unique people who was just plain nice, you know? We were so shocked when this happened to her. I, I was one of her best friends. I've been hoping you'd come by. He added that he and Teresita would ride the bus to and from work together, and sometimes she had him over for a beer. But that was the extent of their friendship. I don't, I don't know what I can do, but I'm here to do whatever I can. When they got to the station, the trio went to one of the interrogation rooms. That's when the detectives started talking. When was the last time you saw Miss Bassa outside of work? Oh, I'd say about six months before. Ah, uh, cut the crap, Alan. Detective Joe's partner said they found Alan's fingerprints all over Teresita's apartment. He was bluffing, but it got Alan to change his story. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I had been there more recently than that, I remember now. I was wrong about that. I'm sorry. Alan explained that he knew Teresita from work, and she said her TV set was broken. So on the night of her murder, he went to her apartment to fix it. That was around 6.30. But he didn't have the right tools, so Alan said he went back home, but forgot to return. He spent the rest of the night at home fixing some electrical wiring. Alan, first you tell us one thing, now you tell us something else. You're just screwing with us now. He told the detectives his wife, Yanka, could back up his story. So they left Alan sitting in the interrogation room and went to talk with her. But she didn't help his alibi. She said that on the night of Teresita's murder, Alan got home around 8 p.m. and stayed home the rest of the evening. She left Alan home alone and then went out shopping. And there was more. Even though she was out shopping that night, she knows that Alan was not working on their electrical wires because he never did things like that. But it was a wave of Yanka's hand that caused them all to do a double take. Sitting on her ring finger was the same pearl cocktail ring that Teresita's ghost identified. Oh, this? Yanka said. It's a late Christmas gift from Alan. He gave it to her sometime at the end of February. Keep in mind, Teresita was murdered on February 21st. The cops asked Yanka to grab her jewelry box and come back to the station. That's where Teresita's cousin was waiting and successfully identified Teresita's pearl cocktail ring, jade necklace, and a few other items. Detective Joe grabbed the ring and rushed toward Alan in the interrogation room. Oh, that? I picked that up from some guy on the street. I didn't know him, but I think I paid him like 28 bucks for it. No more games, Alan. Detective Joe slammed his hands down on the table. We know that's Teresita's jewelry. It's all been identified. It's all over. We know you're involved. We know it and you know it. After a long pause, Alan agreed to tell them what really happened. But first, he turned to Yanka. Honey, you are a wonderful woman and you're gonna have my child. But I did something terrible and I, I want you to start a new life without me. I want you to sell the furniture and find someone decent to take care of you. With tears running down her face, Yanka pleaded to let her help. No, 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 listen to me. I, I love you, honey, but I won't be with you anymore. I'm probably going to be gone a long, long time. I don't want to see you again. Please, forget I ever existed. Yanka eventually exited the room, and then Alan walked the two detectives through the evening of February 21st, 1977. Teresita told him her TV wasn't working, so around 5 o'clock, he went to her apartment to try to fix it but he didn't have the right tools. So he drank a couple of beers and chatted with Teresita before running home to get some wiring diagrams. At the time, he was short on cash. 
He'd been traveling with Teresita downtown to the immigration office to help her with her citizenship. And whenever he did this, she always tipped him five or 10 bucks. So he figured she had some money at the apartment. It was during his walk back to her apartment that he made the decision to rob her. Teresita was on the phone when he arrived around 7.30, so he waited until she finished her call to make his move. When she went to deadbolt the door, he snuck up behind her, put her in a full Nelson, and then knocked her out. He carried Teresita's unconscious body into the bedroom and took off her clothes. He then grabbed the knife from the kitchen and stabbed her in the chest. She was unconscious, didn't feel a thing. But all that cash he expected Teresita to have never turned up. He only found 30 bucks. So he took that and then grabbed some of her jewelry. Alan said he threw a bunch of stuff around the apartment to make it look like it had been ransacked. And before making his escape, he tossed the mattress over Teresita's lifeless body and set fire to a pile of clothes. Detective Joe listened and then decided to throw Alan a curveball. It was a question he already knew the answer to, but he wanted to be sure Alan wasn't some nutball confessing to a crime he didn't commit. When you stripped off her clothes, did you have intercourse with her? No, I did not. I undressed her to make it look like a sex crime, but I never touched her. He put back on his poker face. You're lying to me, Alan. I'm not lying to you. You're trying to frame me. He then asked about the stolen jewelry. The next morning, I tossed it in the park on the way to work. But he didn't throw it all away. I kept the green pendant and the ring and gave him the Inca. That's all I kept. It was almost three o'clock in the morning when the assistant state's attorney took down Alan's official confession. As Alan scribbled his signature at the bottom of his 13-page confession, something just didn't make sense to Detective Joe. He had put away plenty of murderers, but Alan just didn't fit the mold of a killer. Nevertheless, that's what he had just confessed to. After Alan headed to a holding cell, the assistant state's attorney popped back in the room and asked Detective Joe, how'd you ever find this guy? Uh, You wouldn't believe me if I told you. It was the question that would haunt the investigation from that moment on. After nearly six months, investigators have brought charges in connection with the death of Teresita Bassa, the hospital worker who was found fatally stabbed and set on fire in her apartment in February. Early this morning, police arrested 31-year-old Alan Showery and charged him with murder, arson, and burglary. Police say the two worked together at Edgewater Hospital. A note found in Bassa's apartment led them to Showery. Authorities say Showery also had some of the victim's jewelry in his possession. Showery is being held at the Cook County Jail. In their statement to the media and to Alan, the cops left out the part about the ghost and how Remy and Jose Chua put Alan on their radar. And that's where Alan's lawyer dug in. He knew there was more to the story and he wasn't about to let his client plead guilty. He told Alan to forget about his confession and change his plea to not guilty. This meant one of the most unusual murder investigations, one where a ghost tipped off the police, was now headed to the courtroom. No matter what lawyers on either side believed, the search for justice ultimately relied upon 12 indecisive jurors. Next time on If the Walls Could Talk. Alan Showery murdered and robbed Teresita Bassa and set fire to her apartment to cover it up. Alan's fingerprints were not found on the knife or anywhere else in the apartment. He confessed freely and of his own will. 
the police broke Alan Showery. When you decide this case, I urge you to use your common sense. The state's case is nothing but a fishing boat riddled with many reasonable doubts. Learn more on our website, ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. This episode featured sound effects and voiceovers from Brandon Shupi read for Detective Stahula, Edric McNary read for Alan Shower, Susan Winsek read for the news reporter, Chris Rice read for the 911 caller. Sound from freesfx.co.uk and zapsplat.com. This episode was edited by Zach Croteau. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library. Algae by Wayne Jones. Clean Dance by Ann Joan. Breathing Down My Neck by Alex Kashkin. Tension Pulse by Bjorn Lynn. And Suspended in a Dream by Dmitry Belichenko are all used under license through NeoSounds. This episode was written by Todd Gans. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Buckletown Productions, LLC. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.